For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross. It's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Early voting for Oklahoma City Mayor has already begun with the general election on Tuesday, but the race has already become the most expensive in city history, including incumbent Mayor David Holt. The four candidates have raised more than $1.5 million and spent nearly $700,000. Eva, are you surprised by the cost of this race? Not really. And, and let's take into account that the majority of those funds are funds that have been raised by the incumbent mayor running for re-election for his first term. Uh, so re running to have a second term, I guess I should say. But, you know, I think uh, good news, I mean, I think for all candidates uh, looking at uh, the election next Tuesday is that the, the forecast is uh, sunny in 55. So uh, turnout will now be on all of these campaigns to see if they've really got a ground game to get their their folks out and as we've talked about in the past i mean money is one element to the campaign but in particularly municipal elections school board elections where you have much lower turnout mm -hmm. uh, four years ago when the the mayor won with uh, i think almost 78 79 percent of the vote in a three-way kind of sleeper <laughs> uh, race not not as much activity certainly as we're seeing this year but there was only about 8% turnout of, of the uh, eligible registered voters. So um, it, it will be interesting to see if these groups that are challenging, these individuals and their the kind of their groups that they've fashioned together, if in fact they can boost turnout and how that uh, changes things. But, you know, as we saw with some published reports uh, as recently as last week, I mean, the governor's or the uh, mayor's folks, excuse me, um, had uh, said that they had uh, somewhere around a 55 point uh, lead so mm -hmm. they're in a they're in a good place if they can turn you know turn their folks out um, they're clearly spending you know their money to do that they're not taking anything for granted by their own admission and then you have uh, two of these three opponents uh, spending enough to be able to generate uh, some real activity um, even though they're making it a very partisan driven um, election uh, by their, you know, by both accord in terms of trying to get pockets of Republicans that would be disenchanted with the mayor uh, to come out and vote against him and vote for one of the two of these folks, uh, either Urbanic or Hefner. So um, it'll be fascinating to watch. But uh, I think at this point, uh, um, anyone handicapping this race would have to say that it's certainly mayor holds to lose. He's in a good position to win re-election if, uh, if there's not some surprise in terms of turnout or some last minute um, some last minute uh, occurrence that sometimes we know happens in mm -hmm. campaigns and that last weekend that would start to change change minds. But even then, you've still got to not only change minds, you've got to get people to the polls. Uh, Ryan. Well, and, you know, so this this money, the biggest part of it is, as Neva says, is in uh, Mayor Holt's campaign uh, war chest. Uh, and he's spent a lot of it and he has a lot of it left over. You know, so, uh, um, you know, I, you get to a point in a campaign where you raise so much and you spend so much that there's really not a lot left to spend it on. Um, and so this is just a matter of turnout at, at this point, as, as Neva says. And, uh, you know, the two far right candidates, uh, you know, especially uh, Hefner, their their entire, I, at least my sense is that their entire campaign is premised on this idea that they can uh, translate the the outrage and the the vitriol uh, and the divisiveness 
um, that they kind of trade in, in, in social media and, and in corners of the internet and translate that into turnout at the ballot box. Um, you know, in some instances around the nation, we've seen that happen. I think more often than not, uh, the folks that are willing to show up on the, the internet and are uh, you know, the loudest on social media are not always the people that will show up on election day when you need them to, especially if you're trying to change a turnout model. Now, all, all that being the case, the turnout model doesn't have to change a lot whenever you're talking about uh, such small numbers of voters that will show up on election day. I, I think that one thing that, that we can probably all agree on and probably predict with a great uh, degree of certainty right now is that turnout will be low. Um, and so even, even though it's going to be a nice day outside and, you know, all the snow that I'm looking at outside my window right now is probably going to be gone by then, uh, it's still going to be low turnout. And the last thing I'll just note on, on these, these funds that have uh, been reported is that uh, <clears throat> Urbanic and, and Hefner have both loaned their, <clears throat> excuse me, have both loaned their campaigns considerable amounts of money, uh, which is always interesting to me whenever you have a candidate that... <clears throat> is willing to put their own money into the campaign, uh, especially whenever the odds are that far against them. I mean, I guess you have to have some money there in order to raise money. Uh, I understand that very well, uh, but it is strange to think that you would walk in and you know spend you know that much money on a campaign that most uh, most folks would tell you you don't really have a chance of winning. You know, I think it's interesting too. One quick note. I mean, in terms of kind of handicapping this race, four years ago. Uh, when David Holt ran uh, for mayor, he had a thousand names of, of folks that publicly endorsed his campaign. Uh, this time in his bid for re-election, he released, uh, I believe it was just a few days ago, a list that I noticed had 2,000 names of, of folks that were publicly endorsing. That's a significant uh, point because, again, it's about who you know that are the, the folks that are for you that you can get to the polls. And so I think this is, uh, this is another indicator that the whole campaign is not taking anything for granted in terms of their grassroots game. A little further south in Norman, four candidates are vying to keep Mayor Brea Clark from a second term. Clark survived a recall, recall attempt last year from opponents who took issue with her moving to cut funding to the city's police department. Clark has also come under fire for her handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. If no one gets 50% of the vote, it could be headed to a runoff in April. Ryan, how likely is a runoff election, do you think? I think a runoff election here is all but guaranteed. Um, you know, what, what you have is you've got four candidates in this race, uh, and even though it's a nonpartisan race, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to draw the lines of, of where everybody sits there. And, and you've got the two camps evenly divided. I think you've got the Unite Norman camp, uh, which it's kind of funny. They, they call themselves Unite Norman, and, you know, they very quickly splintered uh, into to multiple different factions themselves. And, you know, as they're trying to unite Norman, they can't even get their own act together. So they, they've got kind of two candidates out there competing for the Unite Norman far right camp that uh, is, is trying to, uh, you know, swing the, the pendulum, as they say, back to the right, which I don't know that the pendulum's ever been that far to the right uh, in Norman, at least in my lifetime. Uh, but that's, that's, that's their goal. Uh, and then you've got, you know, Midway Bob and Mayor Clark competing for, you know, uh, the more progressive Democratic votes in Norman. I think that there's, there's a good chance that um, you see this, I think almost certainly you see it go into a runoff. It's just, really going to be a matter of one, as we mentioned in the Oklahoma City race, turnout, who shows up to, to vote, and do we end up in a situation where 
Um, I, I think that it's, you know, my guess right now is that Mayor Clark makes that runoff, uh, both as an incumbent. And this isn't, even though this is her first re-election, uh, having gone through the recall, uh, she's been really tested over, the la- over her first term in office. Um, and has, I think, built a strong uh, basis of support that helps her get into that runoff. But it's not impossible that she ends up in a runoff with Bob Thompson, uh, former city council member and, and owner of Midway Deli. Uh, and and, Norm and, I, and U- the Unite Norman folks are completely shut out of that runoff. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where you know, I, I see that as a, as a real possibility. And again, turnout's going to be going to be key here. Um, and uh, I think that if Unite Norman had been able to you know, truly unite and had one candidate out there, uh, we'd probably see uh, you know, one of them at least heading to the runoff. But I just I don't know that that's the case now that they're going to divide their vote. Neither. Well, I think I think Ryan is right. I mean, you, you do have this uh, you, you have what galvanized this whole competition, I think, in this in this election. You had uh, you had the whole issue of, uh, quote, defunding the police as it sometimes was characterized. And that may, you know, and and folks that would argue that that's a mischaracterization. Nevertheless, it was about, you know, taking funds away from police. It was about kind of a change in the whole mindset on the council at the time with Mayor Clark uh, at the helm. And that began this kind of, this this long protracted fight that we're seeing. And, and Ryan is right. I mean, you have, uh, you have the conservative kind of, she fashions herself conservative businesswoman and and political outsider with uh, Nicole Kish. And then you have Larry Heikola, who is uh, someone who is a a career naval um, uh, veteran who has worked for the city of Norman for 17 years, I think in their uh, basically safety uh, area as a safety manager. So you have these two folks that kind of started out in the same camp now with, you know, each kind of pulling their own faction. And I think that it is fascinating that as, as he's often dubbed Midway Bob, Bob Thompson is the guy who is really trying to make, make it about local politics and making it about these races being nonpartisan, truly nonpartisan, uh, as opposed to trying to just uh, make it the Republicans versus the Democrats and make it a last stand. So um, it, w- it will be interesting, I think, in a runoff, because depending on who those who those two folks are, if it is the mayor, then, you know, one could argue that anyone wanting a change, whoever that person is that's in the runoff with the mayor, may be the beneficiary of those votes, regardless of whether that was their first preference or not, and may even be able to uh, bring some folks out, perhaps it didn't come out in, you know, next Tuesday's uh, election. So it will be interesting. It's certainly, a, you know, many hope, uh, I think, uh, that want to see this sea change, as they call it, uh, with a council that changes, that's much more business friendly, that's much more uh, focused on uh, safety issues, which ironically, in the forum, uh, all of the candidates came out and said that they would make that the priority, that uh, Mm -hmm. public safety would be the priority. So if nothing else that's happened through this long kind of engaged back and forth battle uh, in, in the political terms, it has reset, kind of reset the focus in Norman, it would appear, on the, uh, the, the real idea that public safety is something that the citizens really want at the forefront of what the, what the city council and the mayor does. Well, and, and the real loser in this campaign, even before Election Day, is the, the phrase defund the police. I, I think that, uh, as Neva said, even Mayor Clark 
uh, who you know led that effort to re- redirect funding to mental health and, and social programs within the Norman Police Department. You know, she's saying that she's not in favor of defund the police. And I think that, you know, one of the things that happened in, in the wake of uh, uh, George Floyd's death and the, the summer of, of racial protests um, is that people wanted to, you know, uh, you know, see be seen as responsive to their constituency, saying that they wanted reform. And unfortunately, that reform got cast in a in a in a narrative <clears throat> that wasn't very popular with voters. And I think that we're seeing that happen right now. The other thing is um, this would be an, a, a fascinating test case for instant runoff primaries um, because you know we think about like what might happen in that runoff. Well, how great would it be right now if voters could walk into the ballot box on election day and set their preferences? And if we don't have fifty percent on that first ballot, we've got an immediate winner uh, in in the preferential ballots as as they go down the road until they get to somebody that has over fifty percent. So. Uh, this would be great if we had instant runoffs. It'd save us a lot of time, save the city of Norman a lot of money. And we'd know uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday who the mayor of Norman uh, is going to be after Election Day. I do think that there's not that much of an appetite for that idea still. I mean, even though, you know, you've talked about it oftentimes on the program, Ryan. But I mean, the April 5th runoff um, certainly is, is, I think, what the focus will be. Uh, if in fact no one gets fifty percent plus one, and as we're as we're all talking about this, it would be it would be a wild scenario to see that happen. Not impossible, based on if someone did an excellent turnout uh, model and was able to uh, really uh, galvanize their folks, and everyone else just kind of went to sleep at the switch. But it will be it will be interesting to see what happens on Tuesday. Neva, maybe the problem with instant runoff gaining traction is that I have been talking about it on the program so much. Maybe, maybe I'll stop saying stuff about it. <laughs> I'm against it, people. I'm against it. <laughs> Oklahoma's congressional delegation is seeking $308 million for state tribes as they deal with the fallout from McGirt. All five congressmen are asking the Appropriations Committee to provide the money to help the tribes meet the law enforcement and judiciary obligations as they prosecute crimes on their reservations. Ryan, do you think the money will be allocated? Well, I sure hope so. Uh, you know, I, I hope that this doesn't get caught up in you know, typical partisan politics in Washington, D.C. This is something that deserves and demands a bipartisan solution. Uh, it's refreshing. Uh, to have a conversation about McGirt that really is talking about uh, constructive policy ideas and policy responses to the McGirt decision, instead of just trying to throw rocks at the the Supreme Court's holding that uh, that reservation landed in Oklahoma is still uh, part of and recognized as a sovereign, many sovereign nations uh, uh, that exist here. And so this is, uh, this is exactly the kind of conversation that um, I would hope that state uh, leaders would also be engaged in. I mean, this is, McGirt isn't an impossible solution. It's only impossible if we refuse to, to deal with it. There are, uh, in addition to answers to, you know, concerns that people have raised, there are a ton of opportunities, um, both for the state, federal, and especially within tribal governments, uh, to begin to serve as laboratories for things like criminal justice reform measures that um, could perhaps gain salience throughout the entire state of Oklahoma at some point. So, to me, this is uh, this is a, a positive step forward, and I, I'm I'm grateful that Oklahoma's congressional delegation is is trying to be a part of a, a constructive and, and positive move forward on on how the state can best uh, recognize, respect, and and seize the opportunities of McGirt. Neva, 
Well, absolutely. And I think uh, I think you're right. The proactive uh, uh, stance that the congressional delegation has taken. And, and let's remember, I mean, Congress uh, right now is basically uh, operating on a temporary spending measure that expires on February 18th. They didn't pass uh, the, uh, the, the budget in the new, for the new fiscal year that began on October 1. So we're, you know, we're, we're going down that road. And so I think what we saw is that the House Appropriations Committee in Congress last year passed a bill that had $70 million that basically uh, would help uh, additional funding for the state's three U.S. attorney's offices. I think that also includes things like FBI, DEA, U.S. Marshals. I mean, all of those folks that would be engaged in, in, in the uh, uh in the need for this additional money, but they only had 10 million that came in in the uh, uh, the bill from the Interior Department, which also has the BIA under it. And so that was where, I mean, that to ramp up the criminal justice system side is extremely low. And what, you know, what these uh, uh, tribal leaders have done is outline already, you know, the tens of millions of dollars that uh, uh, that it is costing and basically saying that it is bankrupting them uh, to continue to have to go down this road. So it's a serious uh, financial question uh, in dealing with McGirt and certainly something that I think Congress has got to wrestle with. Uh, it, we're not talking billions of dollars. I mean, thankfully, we're talking millions, but it is something in the in the give and take of the conversation on budgets and where they go moving forward is uh, is something that at least we can look and see that the uh, congressional delegation is well engaged in and very supportive of making sure that uh, um, that the dollars um, are advocated for in a significant way. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation finishes its long-awaited report on Epic Virtual Charter School. State Auditor Cindy Bird says this is the largest amount of reported abuse of taxpayer funds in the history of this state. She also says she's shocked this hasn't been prosecuted yet. Neva, do you think Attorney General John O'Connor will prosecute this case now that he has the report? Well, I think that's the big question and everybody's waiting and watching and stay tuned. I, you know, you would assume that um, uh, when it was confirmed just Tuesday of this week that the uh, OSBI had completed its year long investigation, had turned it over now to the attorney general's office for review, that it really is squarely in the attorney general's camp. I mean, uh, before he was waiting for that. Now he has it. Now, now it's a, a situation of making a determination. And let's face it. I mean, it's at a time when the legislature is coming back in. Uh, Auditor and Inspector Byrd was just uh, uh, before a joint meeting of the House um, uh, Common Ed and Appropriations and Budget uh, subcommittee this week outlining all that she knew. And so uh, it, it really sets up for, I think, a lot of pressure on this situation to see what kind of action or lack of action takes place. So um, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch here in the next week or two, because I think that question will continue to be asked of the attorney general and his office is, where is this and what do you intend to what do you intend to do? Ryan. Well, and, you know, I. I hate when politics plays into prosecutorial discretion and, and decision-making. It, it shouldn't ever. Um, but I do think that if the attorney general does not uh, prosecute Epic uh, Youth, Youth Services and, and the, the founders of Epic Youth Services as a result of this audit uh, and this OSBI report, um, 
I think that it will become a central uh, campaign issue in his reelection campaign and in the, in the upcoming primary for the Republican nomination to serve as attorney general. And I think that Gettner Drummond will definitely ask the question of why did the attorney general, the incumbent attorney general, pass on prosecution when the goods were delivered to him? Uh, you know, the both both the audit itself. And that's that's where I think that, you know, the auditor inspector Byrd has has. Uh, kind of express surprise is that even if the attorney general is saying that he'd been waiting on this OSBI report, the audit itself, uh, I, I believe I, that I'm not mischaracterizing the auditor's uh, auditor Bird's uh, sentiment here, but I think that she's of the opinion that the audit itself had enough information in it uh, for the attorney general to begin a prosecution. And so now that combined with OSB, the OSBI investigative report, which the auditor has, you know, one of the things that she was testifying in front of that, that House committee, she was saying, uh, detailing how difficult it was to even get this information and that there's still information outstanding. Uh, and so we, ha we have this, this group still hiding uh, the ball on, on important questions that the state of Oklahoma has asked. So I, I would be shocked if the attorney general does not prosecute in some manner or form this case. And I would not be shocked if he chooses not to prosecute that this becomes, you know, one of the top two or three issues that uh, Republican primary voters are uh, asked to consider whenever they're deciding who they want to be their next attorney general. I think it's interesting, too, that the auditor and inspector during this hearing um, earlier this week, I mean, acknowledged that she had been told by the new chair of the uh, Epic Charter Schools, the governing board, that uh, they in fact had been notified by the IRS that they were now under federal audit. So uh, it appears that not only are we talking about um, an investigation, reports, audits uh, uh, that have gone on at the state level, but it appears that that, that now is moving into the federal uh, the federal arena as well. So uh, it it's certainly the focus, you know, again, comes back to these two co-founders, comes back to all of this information that has been out there. We've talked about it since the fall of, I think, 2020. I mean, this has been going on a long, long time. I think at that point, we, you know, we made the, the made the, uh, uh, the point that it takes a long time for mm -hmm. these audits, these forensic audits to occur, for all of the, uh, given the fact that there was a great deal of stonewalling, a great deal of difficulty getting information. And you're right, Ryan, that they're still uh, not only still fighting to get information, but now you have these former founders of Epic and the current Epic leadership, the new Epic leadership uh, in, in a court battle back and forth with each other over, uh, you know, over uh, funds that they believe uh, each other is owed. I mean, in this instance, so it's a, it's a very complex, very complicated thing. The, the, the auditor inspector kind of cuts to the chase and says, this is a case of embezzlement, I think was the word she used. Mm -hmm. I mean, and uh, she has been very forceful in saying that this needs Needs to be uh, this needs to be prosecuted. So we'll see what uh, you know what kind of influence that whole conversation has in the larger picture. Just a, a second to point out some irony here that Attorney General O'Connor uh, has made a, a big piece of his of his platform as Attorney General um, using state resources to fight back against federal incursion uh, or perceived federal incursion in, into Oklahoma. And right now, the only entity. Uh, that's pursuing anything that could look like, you know, criminal charges against the what the auditor and inspector has said is the largest 
uh, fraud perpetrated on, on the people of Oklahoma in its history is a federal agency, the IRS. So um, I think if, if the attorney general doesn't want to lose face and let the federal government come do the job, you know, the, the state's going to have to step up to the plate at some point. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at kosu.org.